When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's November 5th, 1274. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. So most nations have a historical moment that retains significance for centuries after they occurred. The Spanish Armada, the Battle of Bannockburn. Well, this was Japan's moment when the Mongols tried unsuccessfully to invade the island nation. Yeah, remember, remember the 5th of November, the day the Mongols invaded Japan. That's going to please the Catholics, isn't it? We've got a new person to remember, everybody. What I love about the whole business is that it was a bit of a side project for Kublai Khan. He was just like, I'm just going to pause this takeover of China and just invade Japan in the way that I might have a side project of like cleaning up the kitchen. I mean, to be fair, I think you could definitely categorise both projects under empire building. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not like he was busy extending China into Korea and then thought, I want to do something different, skateboarding <laughs> or take over Japan. Yeah. You know, that, there's a clear thematic link. Yeah, he was working in his comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> Kublai Khan's initial idea was for Japan to become a vassal state. And this was basically how the Mongol Empire operated because it was vast and there's no way at the time with the speed of communication and travel, etc., that the Mongols could have ruled in person. But you can see that their overtures to Japan escalated <laughs> relatively quickly. In 1266, he wrote to the Emperor of Japan, enter into friendly relations with each other from now on we think all countries belong to one family how are we in the right unless we comprehend this nobody would wish to resort to arms one year later he wrote under our sage emperor all under the light of the sun and moon are his subjects you stupid little barbarians do you dare defy us by not submitting (laughs) i've got to say that a mongol takeover would not have been the end of the world you know i was having a look through some historical accounts of the mongol empire just trying to get into the headspace of what the japanese had to be so afraid of Mm. and most of it's about, you know, like organised taxation systems, big public works projects, new roads and bridges. They were really into education. They opened thousands of schools and lots of religious tolerance. So once the initial pillaging was done, <laughs> you could be guaranteed quite a quiet life. But it wasn't all sweetness and sunshine and light from the Khans and kin. <laughs> because if you encountered Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan's grandfather, chances are you were going to come to a sticky end. And militarily, they were known for not just besieging and then conquering people, but really burning and smashing and pillaging after they had been victorious. And it was because Kublai Khan had inherited this massive legacy that he felt this need to carry on expanding the empire because there was a feeling among the Mongol elite that he had become too enraptured with China and Chinese culture and that he was forgetting the the heart of the Mongol empire and the conquest. So he was sort of getting a bit of pressure within as well to expand. And so his eyes then turned to Japan. What was the deal that he was proposing vis-a-vis Japanese culture, though? Because they have still, you know, they're very, very distinct, national, homogenous almost culture. 
what was he going to do about all that? What, what was the deal with being a vassal state? Well, I mean, the fact that the Mongols and Kublai Khan in particular were already adopting Chinese culture, as Rebecca mentioned, wholesale, suggests that there was a kind of potential overarching homogenization project that was going on, but less in the direction that you might expect. It wasn't the Mongols imposing their own culture on other people, but certainly at least Kublai Khan was interested in becoming more Yuan Chinese as his reign continued. And partly that was because his viziers uh, were saying to him, and this was a, a pretty much direct quote, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but they said, you may be able to conquer f- from horseback, but you cannot rule on horseback. And consequently, he realized that if he was going to take over this country of millions, which was kind of his key asset in China, he was going to have to become more like them. So in answer to the question, I don't know what would have happened if he'd also taken on Japan, but certainly some sort of cross-pollinization you can imagine. Okay, so I mean, we're hinting at what happened here, which was this was an epic fail, right? So he launched (laughs) 900 ships, a fleet of 900 ships. Now, I would have thought in 13th century warfare, that would have been sufficient. Right. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, like, they sliced through the opposition on the islands, didn't they, the Khan's men? Uh, But then when they got to the mainland, Hakata Bay, the Japanese only had 5,000 men to fight Mm. them off. Mm-hmm. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? 5,000 against a fleet of 900 ships. With 40,000 men aboard. Yeah. And the Mongol style of warfare astounded the Japanese as well. You know, because you had the samurai and you had the shogun in charge, there was almost a chivalric notion of, you know, samurai identifying one another and they would engage in a duel, possibly with the assistance of their entourage. But the idea of mass charging warfare was quite new to the Japanese. And it also didn't help that the Mongols were also armed with what they called thunder crash bombs which is a very early form of hand grenade where you basically shove a bunch of gunpowder into an iron shell then you light the fuse and you just throw it at the enemy as hard as you can it's basically indiana jones shooting the swordsman isn't it (laughs) samurai guys would step out getting ready to conduct their civil one-on-one hand-to-hand combat and they just get shot en masse by the Mongols and still the Mongols lost and then they returned to their ships it's unclear why whether they'd somehow you know whether they'd got cold feet or whether they were just going there to shield themselves from any counter-attacks but then suddenly I think I mean you know you're going to go with the latter aren't you when you're explaining to Kublai Khan (laughs) (laughs) sorry we got cold feet (laughs) we got tired of just stamping over all these samurai (laughs) if they thought they were safe in their ships they were very wrong because kamikaze divine wind a sudden sea storm arose dashing as many as 200 warships against the rocks and one historian chap called Stephen Turnbull estimates that about half of the 30,000 troops did not make it back to their base which was in Korea they were either killed in these storms or they were beached or washed up on the shore and then obviously they were unceremoniously butchered by the Japanese defenders And Kublai Khan wasn't best pleased by this, as you implied, Ollie. And he subsequently sent a six-man delegation to demand that the Japanese emperor travel to Dadu and kowtow to him. And the Japanese responded by beheading the Chinese diplomats that had been sent their way and sent that back instead. What, sent their decapitated heads back? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so legend says. It's like an emoji, isn't it? Right, right. The really, really nasty emoji. (laughs) Why write a letter? This sort of tells the story I'm going for. (laughs) But Kublai Khan did then put together a new force, but it took 
some years before he was able to mount his second invasion, which was in 1281. And by this time, he'd completed his conquest of China. So this time it was a two-pronged invasion involving as many as, and of course, you've got to take these figures with a grain of salt because all our accounts are from quite overblown, inaccurate accounts from the time, but as maybe as many as 4,000 ships and 70,000 troops. Unfortunately, when they got to Japan, they realised that the Japanese had not just been sitting around waiting for them to come back. They had built big coastal walls and they had put spikes in the beaches, making it incredibly hard for them to find somewhere to land. Also, the two Mongol fleets took a long time to find one another. And they united in the end, and they seemed about to advance unstoppably. But then, kamikaze! There goes that divine wind again, a <laughs> devastating typhoon, many times more powerful than the original one. And so what made the legacy of these repulsed invasions so huge was one that it had all these stories of heroism, also had this divine wind concept, you know, this idea that Japan had divine intervention on its side, but also it sealed Japan's reputation as a very dangerous place to try to invade, particularly mm. in the eyes of what would, you know, become its regional rival China. Although you don't necessarily want your military prowess to be resting on the fact of typhoons intervening, luckily, in right. your favour. <laughs> Although presumably those stone walls with spikes in are still there, are they? Yeah, and actually for a long time, the whole business was regarded as potentially mythological by historians. Until in 2015, a team of geologists dug up evidence that these typhoons had actually occurred. Initially, some of the doubt was based on the fact that typhoons were thought of as being relatively uncommon in the region. But this newly discovered geological information showed that in fact the typhoons had happened and isn't it interesting how popular culture has intervened so that despite this epic fail invading japan twice and the death of tens of thousands of troops on his watch you think kublai khan and most people think oh xanadu oh thanks coleridge (laughs) wait are you talking samuel taylor coleridge or olivia newton john (laughs) well both actually xanadu makes me laugh whenever i hear like romanticized descriptions of his summer palace because i I happen to know that it's also the name of lionel blair's house oh no no, come on (laughs) i had to send him some post once in a previous life so every anytime i think of kublai khan i think of lionel blair i'm probably the only person for whom that applies that's so perfect yeah it is yeah yeah If you had to live anywhere, it'd be there. (laughs) Tomorrow. Selling a show to one of your rivals and then burning all of the sets (laughs) is an asshole move. (laughs) Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 